Uh, we can turn back to the passage you read there, Romans chapter 8, and we can read again verse uh, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And as you can see, I'd like us to think today about being led by the Spirit. I don't know um, if we know how often the the phrase led by the Spirit is used in the Bible and in what circumstances it appears. As far as I know, it's mentioned three times. It's mentioned once of Jesus and it's mentioned twice of Christians. The occasion that is meant, so it's mentioned of Jesus, is perhaps one that we find surprising, because it happened after his baptism, and we know when he was baptized, it was a very uh, dramatic moment, and uh, the Holy Spirit descended on him, and uh, like a dove. And the Heavenly Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And no doubt it was like a spiritual mountaintop experience. And it's followed immediately by saying that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to face the devil. And uh, we might think that was... uh, rather strange activity of the Spirit to lead Jesus into a situation where he would be tempted. And, and it wasn't just uh, into a five-minute encounter with the devil. He was going to be tempted there for 40 days. And although three of the temptations are recorded, the the three themselves could easily have happened within an hour or so, but he was actually tempted for 40 days. But the leading of the Spirit, as far as um, the words are concerned, they are just mentioned once in the life of Christ. And that was for him to deal with uh, temptation. And, and maybe there's some lessons there for us. Who knows? I mean, would we expect the Spirit to lead us into situations where such things can happen? After all, we are told to pray, lead us not into temptation. But anyway, that's the time it's mentioned in the life of Jesus. But when we come to um, think of Paul's mentioning it, well, he mentions it once there in Romans, as we've just noticed, but he also mentions it in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 18. 
And uh, he says in Galatians 5.18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. But the common feature of both these references by Paul is to a spiritual conflict. And it's uh, to a spiritual conflict between the, the flesh and the Spirit. I mean, these are the two references to being led by the Spirit. And uh, as we no doubt know, in Galatia, the, the Christians there had been misled by uh, other teachers that came along after Paul and Barnabas. And they had said to these um, new Christians, what Paul said to you is not enough. You have to, um, in addition to believing in Jesus, you have to practice the ceremonial law. And they accepted that advice, uh, not realizing that in accepting it, they were adopting uh, the practices of what Paul calls the flesh. And by the flesh, he just means things we can do in our own strength. And it's relatively easy to do the ceremonial law, especially if you're living in Galatia and miles away from the temple. And um, they got them into spiritual bondage and got them into such a state that Paul actually despaired of the genuineness of their Christianity. And in that, he says to them, if the Spirit leads you, he would not have led you to do what you're doing. He is, you've been led into sin. The Spirit doesn't lead you into sin. But he may allow circumstances where we have to fight with sin. And that's not too surprising, is it? Because when is the occasion when we don't fight with sin? Can we name half an hour today when we'll not be fighting with sin. Or can maybe rephrase it. Can we name half an hour today when we should definitely not fight with sin? It's interesting, I think, and I don't know what to make of it. But the three mentions of being led by the Spirit, whether it's the one to do with Jesus or the two to do with Christians, that they involve conflict with sin. Obviously, Jesus, his response to temptation is very different from ours. But there is a sense in which he shows us 
what we should do. And these three temptations are highlighted, as we know about them, to turn stones into bread and so on. He just responded but with basically saying, what does the Bible say? And I suspect that's what Paul is saying about those who are led by the Spirit. They always ask, what does the Bible say? So I'd like us to think today what it means being led by the Spirit. First of all, ask a four rather simple questions. And the answers are basically a phrase to each one of them. And then I will think of two other things. But um, first question is, who does the Spirit lead? And the answer to that one is obvious. He leads Christians. But what kind of Christians does he lead? Is it those who somehow or other have climbed up the ladder of spiritual progress and are now living on the top of a spiritual Mount Everest? Well, don't know about you, but I never met a person who's climbed that high before. What Christians does Paul say are led by the Spirit? The answer is all of them. Whether they're been a Christian for five minutes or whether they've been a Christian for 50 years, whether their lives are mundane or whether their lives are going from one crisis situation to another or whether some of them have the temperament that that um, life is not so difficult. doesn't really matter. All of them are led by the Spirit. Their subjective reactions don't indicate to the Spirit who he should lead. It's a mark of them being sons of God. Every son of God, which includes both male and female, of course, in God's family, every one of them is always led by the Spirit. Imagine what he would be doing if he didn't lead them. Ask yourself that question. What would the Spirit be doing if he wasn't leading them? Well, he'd be abandoning them, wouldn't he? Sometimes he has to lead them out of things because of their folly in going into them. But how else are they going to get out of them, these difficult circumstances that they find themselves in? The only one who can take them out of it is the Holy Spirit. So he leads Christians, all Christians. 
second question is, why are they led by the Spirit? Kind of answered that already, but an obvious answer to that is that he's the only one that knows the way to glory. I mean, that's where they're going, all of them. They're on the road to heaven. They don't know what's around the next bend. He does. There, none of the Christians alive today are the first he's led to glory. And none of the ones who currently are in glory got there without being led by the Spirit. He leads them. That's one of his roles. And it's good for us to know that he's always ahead. Because a leader always leads. He's never behind. He just leads us if we're Christian. The third question is, when are they led by the Spirit? Well, I've kind of answered that. But I think it's important to remind ourselves that being led by the Spirit is the same, in a sense, as being indwelt by the Spirit. And when does the Spirit not indwell us? When does He leave us if we're Christian? He never leaves us. He'll react differently to us depending on the circumstances in which we are in at any given time. But he's not going to leave us. He leads us. And why does he lead us? Or for what does he lead us? Well, the answer to that is in the next two points. He leads us along two roads. There's road number one, and there's road number two. And we're on both roads at the same time. Route number one is mentioned there in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, verse 14, I don't know if you noticed it as we read it, Verse 14 begins with the word for, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And as somebody has pointed out, when a statement begins with the word for, you have to read the previous one to find out what it's pointing to. And the statement before the word for at the start of verse 14 is verse 13. And in verse 13, Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if this, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, for then says, the Spirit will lead you to put to death the deeds of the body. The old word for that, of course, was mortification. Mortification of sin. And that's road number one that the Spirit leads us down. What's road number two? Or route number two? Well, it's found in the passage in Galatians. What's the alternative that Paul provides to 
living according to the ceremonial law. What does he say the people in Galatians should have been producing? And what he says to them there in Galatians in 5 and verses 25 and 26, I think he says, the fruit of the Spirit. That's root number two. Producing the fruit of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit leads us into. He leads us, first of all, into putting death to sin. And he leads us, secondly, to replace that, that sinful practices with the fruit of the Spirit. And these are the only two roads he leads us along. He leads every Christian. It's almost his commitment to them when they come to him initially, repenting of their sins and, and trusting in him for salvation, he is a task to perform. And that task is that they become holy. And holiness involves these two things put into death what Paul calls the deeds of the flesh or the old man and producing the fruit of the spirit and these are the only two things as far as I can see that we've got authority to say the spirit led us other things that happen to us, we might think he has led us. And he may have done. But that assessment is only a subjective one. The Bible tells us the two areas in which he leads us. And if he doesn't lead us in them, then we don't have him. Because that's what Paul says. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So it's quite serious. And it's important for us at this particular moment, before we think a bit more about these two roads that we walk down, that um, we just ask ourselves, do we have the Holy Spirit? And the evidence is clear. If we have him, we'll be dealing with our indwelling sin and we'll be producing the fruit of the Spirit. It won't just be one of them. It'll be both of them. Because they happen simultaneously. It's automatic. And it's God's gracious purpose for his people And when we actually think about it, what greater leader could he have provided? I mean, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, he's divine. We know that. 
Even the first verse, start of the Bible, we're told about his, if we want to put it this way, we're told about his potential. When he was hovering over the unshaped mass at the beginning, giving life. And as we know from Genesis chapter 1, the end of his activities there in the first week is to produce a beautiful garden full of life. And there's a kind of picture there of what he does in the lives of his people. Because when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, the only other word that describes that phrase is Christ-likeness. So the Spirit is working to conform his people to the image of his Son. That's what he's doing today. Here we are, meeting in the presence of God. What is God doing as we meet in his presence? What is the Holy Spirit doing at 20 to 12? He's leading us. Leading us to do what? To mortify our sins and to produce fruit. We're in the middle of a means of grace. One designed by the one who's got an infinite mind, who knows exactly what we need, and who has made it available for us. Here we are, in the presence of the Holy One, who's not inactive in our service. He's not here as a mere observer. He's here to work. And he's working within us. And he'll continue to work, of course, after we leave here. But that's where we are at the moment. I suppose we could say with regard to mortification, we're on the operating table. And with regard to fruitfulness, the heavenly gardeners at work. So route number one, mortification. What can we say about it? Well, it's a continuous activity. We can see that from the present tense that Paul uses there in verse 13. We just put it to death. <laughs> the strange thing about it, of course, is every time we put it to death, five seconds later up it pops again, whatever the thing is that we're dealing with. But anyway, it's a continuous activity. And how thankful we should be that the Holy Spirit's involved in that if it's continuous. I mean, who's going to give us the energy to deal with our sins? 
Only God can. And God has. God does provide it. We may look into our hearts and say, well, I don't know how I'm going to deal with that. It's far too much for me. But of course, if we think there's anything that's not too much for us, we've missed the point. We need the Spirit for every defect that's within us. But it's a continuous activity. Even here, in the presence of God. The second thing we can say about it is that we're responsible to do it. You know, there's two basic wrong ideas that out there about sanctification. One is that God does all of it. And the other one is that we, we do all of it. And both of them are wrong. Sanctification is a work in which God works within our souls, but we also work as well. It's not 50 50, it's 100 100. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. So there's um, Paul, and he's telling us there in these, like, to the Philippians that it's a cooperation. He gives the power we use the power. He gives the means. We use the means. We know what the means are. Prayer, the Bible, fellowship, and so on. If we don't use them, God has no substitutes. So it's, we have to do it. Mortification is our responsibility. And when you and I get to the judgment seat and God says to us, why did you lose your temper on such and such a date? We can't say to him, you didn't give us the power. He did give us it. It's also a difficult activity. I mean, Jesus himself said that, didn't he? When he likened it to amputation. I mean, some of the illustrations that the Savior uses are very graphic. And they're meant to be graphic because they deal with very serious issues. For example, he says in Mark chapter 9, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, Jesus is not suggesting we engage in literal amputations, 
But you know, there are things as strongly attached to our heart as our limbs are to our body. And he is saying with regards to the things in our heart, cut, cut them off. It's going to be painful, isn't it? He's not saying it's going to be a very pleasant experience. And of course, the other illustration that's used of dealing with our sins is crucifixion. And we know what crucifixion was like. But those, he says in the Galatians, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. They've taken it to the cross. And anyone that was taken to the cross struggled. And when they were on the cross, they struggled. And they could be struggling for days on end. And our dealing with our sins, we have to drag them to the cross and nail them to the cross. And they can be darling sins, can't they, as our forefathers used to call them. We love them. If we didn't love them, we wouldn't have to drag them. At the same time, it's a straightforward activity, because God has told us what to do. He hasn't given us, here's some advice for you. If you want a happy Christian life, just do this. That's not what he says. He says if you want a good Christian life, you must do this. You must put to death the sins that beset us. How do we do that? Well, it's often been pointed out, have to starve them. You know, take any sin you wish. If you feed it, it will grow. Doesn't matter what it is. You have to starve it. You've also got to replace it. Merely getting rid of it just creates a vacuum. That something else will fall into. And quite often it has been suggested and I think quite wisely that we replace a negative with a positive. Like if you hate someone, replace it by love. If we despise someone, replace it with honor. Do the opposite. And of course we must repent. And repentance is a very necessary experience. And perhaps we might find it a bit um, unsettling. But you know, 
The best thing to do when you go to the doctor is tell him what's wrong. And the best thing to do with the heavenly doctor is to ask him to operate. And if he does, and if we do that, it's amazing what repentance brings. It's often been pointed out that a Christian soul is like a garden. When God first came up to it, it was full of weeds. He started to put the seeds of flowers into it. He didn't take all the weeds out. And he never will take them all of them out while we're in this world. If he did take them all out, then we wouldn't have road one, would we? To get to glory. It's good for us, in a certain sense, to recognize our sins are there. Because it brings us to the, to the heavenly surgeon and ask him to deal with us. And the outcome, of course, as mentioned earlier, is Christ-likeness. You know, there are benefits of mortification or putting sin to death. In addition to being more Christ-like, we help other Christians by our example. We can see what they are like. And they should tell us their experiences. You know, I can remember a long time ago wondering how other Christians did not seem to have the problems I had. Inner problems. They discovered they did have them. <laughs> that they all had them. And they for years had been taking them to the heavenly surgeon. You know, it's good to share our experiences of being under his care. And what other way do we encourage each other? I mean, all of us, if we're Christians, have been on the operating table. And we should be able to say to each other, and we're duty-bound to say to each other, God dealt with that. And if we don't tell each other, we're depriving them of comfort. And of course, it strengthens assurance, doesn't it? If we're growing in divine experience of grace, well, as Paul says, he who has begun the good work will complete it. But at the moment, we're somewhere in the middle. 
And it's good to have that assurance that he who started it will complete it. So that's mortification. Road number one. You know, there's no speed limit on this road. Deal with it as quick as you can. Because the reality is, you'll be dealing with it again tomorrow. And then there's fruit bearing. The fruit of the Spirit. It's a, it's a wonderful experience, the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? When you see someone planting a tree and he says to you, this is an apple tree, what do you expect to see in it? Apples. If somebody plants a pear tree, what do you expect to see? Pears. When Jesus, or when God the Father, gave us new life, or to ask another question, what kind of tree is a Christian? What kind of fruit do we expect to see? And the answer we know is obvious, isn't it? We expect to see Christ. And it comes from within. You can't go to a shop and buy Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness flows from within. It's an inner change that just comes out. His laws are written on our hearts. We love them. You know, and the fruit of the Spirit, people have tried to Analyze the nine items, divide them into three groups of three, and so on. And if you want, we can read commentaries that will tell us all that. And they may have some virtue in their divisions. But what actually matters, of course, is the possession of the nine. There's not nine fruits. There's only one fruit, but the fruit has nine aspects. And it's a beautiful picture, picturist, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, and so on. But again, it's not a description of some extraordinary Christian. Although it is an extraordinary description, but it's not a description of an extraordinary Christian. It's a normal description. Because we're dealing with an extraordinary God. 
and he gives spiritual life. And that life shows itself in the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, it's not hard, is it, to work out if we love? It's not hard to work out if we got joy or peace and so on. They're there. If the Spirit is working. I mean, this particular list of nine aspects a good way for self-examination, isn't it? We've got the Lord's Supper next week. We have to examine ourselves before it. Sometimes I think we tend to focus on what we're not doing. That we don't do this and we don't do that. But sometimes I think we need to go a bit deeper. Fruit of the Spirit shows us how. When Paul comes to the end of Galatians chapter 5, after talking about the fruit of the Spirit and dealing with sin, He says this, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And the phrase, keep in step, it's a military term, which of course reminds us that we follow a leader, but we also follow a leader in a group, isn't it? It's like an army. It's soldiers. We keep in step with the Spirit. And your, I mean, my limited experience of army life is zero. But um, the little bit I see on the television, you know, the leader is just ahead of them. And there's the Spirit. And in Paul's illustration, he's walking ahead. It doesn't say to the Galatians, keep in step with one another. He says, keep in step with the leader. And if we keep in step with the leader, we'll keep in step with one another. I mean, that's the only way to do it. And... The Holy Spirit, he's leading us together to glory in his wisdom. He has put us together and he expects us to keep in step with him. In Galatia, because they hadn't kept in step with him, 
they were fighting and destroying one another. And Paul mentions that. And the remedy is keep in step with the Spirit. And then we march along the path that the Spirit has chosen. Because he knows the destination. And he also knows when each of us are going to get there. And therefore we just follow him, being led by the Spirit. And as I close, I just mention this. If you're not a Christian, who is leading you? And where is he leading you? Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks for your nearness. We know you're omnipresent. But in that sense, you're as near to anyone as anyone. But your word speaks about nearness in another way. You're our guide. Not a guide who's a long way away. You're a guide who's just in front of us. And you tell us to keep in step with you. And in order for that to happen, we have to keep our eyes on you. We thank you, Lord, that you lead us safely when we follow your instructions. Help us to do it together, harmoniously, following the Holy Spirit. So bless us with that blessing, Lord. Remember us and be with us. For your own name's sake, amen.